Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The Military Maxims of Napoleon. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today, we're going to be going over some more of Napoleon's maxims. Granted, he's using maxims today that are far less simple than the ones we've become used to, but they still contain quite a bit of wisdom for us. But, before we get into that, I have exciting news. And it just, it just tickles me. Do you remember, not too terribly long ago, when I was talking about where the show is listened to. And I was extremely, or let's just say pleased as punch, that it's being listened to on six continents. Well, it turns out that I was wrong. We are listened to on all seven continents, baby. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I don't know which one of you mounted that amphibious operation, but let me know. I've got got some uh, awards that I need to give you. No. Um, what happened was when I had talked about that, um, my wife had a friend who was down in the area and, uh, he'd been listening to it, but it didn't necessarily show up as Antarctica because Antarctica doesn't have its own infrastructure like that. I mean, it's just sort of a, a cold, desolate wasteland with occasional research facilities popping up here and there. So it, it, what it does is reroute through either Australia or Argentina and, so I, it, when I was looking at it, I was like, oh, there's, you know, there's another listener in Argentina. Turns out that that was somebody in Antarctica. So you, dear listener, are listening to a show that is heard across six continents. And whoo, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, honestly, thank you guys. That's, that is, that means a lot to me. It means a lot to the show. And uh, I'm I'm glad that we can be putting out material that people are enjoying and we, are committed to making sure that this goes forward. So yeah, thank you so much for conquering Antarctica for us. Uh, And then right before we get into this, uh, kind of a shorter intro this time around, I wanted to have a disclaimer for this episode. This one might be a little confusing. It was difficult in many sections to figure out how to talk about it because when we're dealing with siege tactics, which is what a good portion of the episode concerns, That's a very angular, mathematic approach to warfare, more so than the others. I can describe a whole lot of other aspects of warfare better than I can describe siege warfare because, again, there is so much to do with visualization. So if I was sitting there with you right now, wherever you are, and I had popped up my whiteboard, yes, Gen Zers, such miraculous items once existed before, (laughs) no, I tease. But uh, I pop up my whiteboard and get my dry erase and be, you know, showing you or talking about these, these themes while being able to look at them, that would be ideal. 
and hopefully in the future when yours truly actually gets moving on the YouTube. I'm glad that I can be honest with you guys in the fact that I am technologically incompetent and really just enjoy reading old books and talking with y'all about them. That really is what makes me happy. But had I the ability to show you, there would be a lot going on. For instance, when we're dealing with lines and we're talking about circumvallation and contravallation uh, fortifications, it would really help for me just to be able to draw it around and say, okay, this line, you know, this, out, this outside line, that's the contravallation. Inside is the circumvallation, and that kind of shows you which way they're going. But I can say that, and it's, I mean, I can kind of visualize it even when I'm saying it, but it'll be way easier to show it. And there's a lot of things about sieges that are way easier to show just in terms of, of that. So if, if this episode is a little convoluted, a little confusing, I apologize for that. But I really did try to explain it to the best of my ability. And, and we're going to be moving out of this, by the way. I wanted to do the text justice and make sure that we touched on these topics. But that being said, the rest of Napoleon's maxims are not about siege. Thank God. <laughs> it's a very complicated topic. But it is one that I look forward to talking about, not necessarily within a war gaming context, but just within a historic context and within the context of the time that Clausewitz and Napoleon were living. So, without further ado, let's get into Maxim 36. Jumping right back into it, we left off at 35 last time. Now, as we're going through these next several ones, please do uh, bear with me because a couple of them are quite long. In turn, like they, they go from these rather short maxims that he has been using for the most part to a bit more uh, Clausewitz-esque kind of language and, um, and detail going into it. Now, granted, the things he's going into detail about were very important for this era of fighting and for the sake of what we're doing and kind of the purity of the text. I, I do want to read through them, but you'll also notice how some of the information doesn't necessarily line up with the way that we do our war games or war gaming. It's, it's more of a, well, you'll see. Let's start, shall we? Number 36. When a hostile army is covered by a river on which it has several bridgeheads, you should not approach it in the front. For in doing so, your forces would be too little concentrated and in danger of being broken into detached parts if the enemy should sally from one bridge, one of the bridgeheads. You should approach the river you wish to cross in columns disposed in an echelon, so that there may only be a single column, the foremost one, which the enemy can attack without exposing their own flank. Meanwhile, the light, tropes the light troops will line the bank, and when you have fixed on a point at which to pass, you must proceed rapidly to the spot and throw a bridge across. You must take care that that bridge should always be at a distance from the leading echelon in order to deceive the enemy. So basically this is kind of boiled down. This is very Napoleon-esque approach to a, a, a crossing, to a fording of a river. And what he's saying is basically that we need to get up there quickly and we need to threaten our opponent uh, with as much force as we can in terms of like the bridgeheads that they control. And in doing so, like hit them hard in an echelon. An echelon is like a triangle. Think about a triangle and of course the tip 
is the part that you're driving into it. And in such a way, your enemy is kind of distracted, right? And because we don't have a single flank, and I've definitely seen this happen too, when you're doing bridge battles. I know uh, around here in Stygia, we don't typically do a whole lot of really complicated scenarios or, or even geographically sort of complicated scenarios because of the small numbers that we have. But when you go into a larger event uh, or something along those lines or a larger realm, perhaps even, uh, I've seen multiple bridges. You know, we have multiple bridges kind of moving from one way to another. The three is fairly typical. And you have your actions that are taking place on each of them. And what he's saying is you drive hard towards the one, like really hard towards it, and keep the rest of your forces, instead of spreading them out, out across the rest of the bridge heads, you make sure that they can't really divert the troops. You know what I'm saying? So like, if we're hitting them in, in all three places, we're trying to push through, and they manage to hit us hard enough to push us back in one area, that means that entire flank, we just got rolled up and potentially encircled because of the positioning that our enemy is able to attain. Instead, when we hit one bridge super hard and keep the rest of our forces not as drivers across the other bridges, but merely as flank guards for the main force, well, that again forces our opponent to condense, to consolidate what they're doing. They, if they try to go for that spread, they're going to get crushed. We're going to pull right through, bam, push through that one bridge where we're putting forth effort where the other ones suffer. And so in this way, we're actually covering more ground by covering less ground, if that makes sense. Um, and of course, this, this also references our last couple of maxims that we went over where he's talking about you don't want your army to be in detached parts. You know, that's kind of carrying on with his themes from last episode of being, keep it together. Make sure that we've got everything staying together um, and then get across quickly. That's the other thing. And, and all of our theorists have said that, you know, it kind of makes sense. Do not dally in the river where you're automatically weak as a, as a rule. Okay. This next one is long. Uh, so bear with me. The moment that you become master of a position, which commands the opposite bank, you obtain many frail faculties for affecting the passage of a river, especially if that position has sufficient extent to admit your planting of large numbers of pieces of artillery upon it. This advantage is less if the river is more than 600 yards wide, as the grape will no longer reach the other shore, and consequently the troops that oppose the passage, by suitable precautions, can render your fire to, to little effect. Hence, if the grenadiers charged with the duty of the passing of the river to protect the bridge succeed in crossing to the other side, they will be swept off by the enemy's grape shot, as his batteries established 400 yards from the termination of the bridge are near enough to the point to pour in a very destructive fire, although more than a thousand yards distant from the batteries of the army which is endeavoring to pass. Therefore, he has all of the advantage of artillery. So in such a case, the passage is not predictable, or not practic practicable? How about practical? How about that? Unless you either contrive to take the enemy by surprise, or protected by an intervening island, or avail yourself of a deep re-entrant bend, which enables you to er erect batteries crossing their fire just in advance of the point where a landing is to be effected. Such an island or re-entrance form a natural bridgehead and give the advantage of artillery to the attacking army. When a river is less than 120 yards in breadth, 
You can command the opposite bank. The troops that are thrown over to the other side derive advantages from the protection afforded by the artillery that, however slight the reentrant formed by the river may be, is impossible for the enemy to prevent the establishment of a bridge. Under, under such circumstances, the most skillful generals, when they have been able to foresee the designs of their antagonist and arrive with their army at a point at which he is making an attempt, have contented themselves with disputing the passage of the bridge. A bridge being, in fact, a defile, you should place yourself in a half-circle around its extremity and take measures to shelter yourself at a distance of 600 or 800 yards from the fire of the other bank. Wordy. Very wordy. So let's, let's go back and kind of pick this one apart, shall we? And again, I, mostly just for understanding, this one doesn't necessarily have as much to do with what we do, but it's still interesting information. So you'll notice a couple of times in this text, he refers to grape or grape shot. And for those of you who do not already know, usually when we think of a cannon, we think of solid shot, you know, that one cannonball that goes across and uh, does dis very destructive damage to an acute point. Grape shot turns a cannon into a shotgun. It's a, it, it does more of a spread and it can be fired to devastating effect. Now it doesn't have the same range as a normal solid shot weapon does. And so the, the numbers that he's providing here are ones that are very particular to when the war was being fought at this time. If you'll remember, Napoleon was benefiting from an army that had standardization of parts. And so you could depend on your cannons to reach a certain point and have a certain degree of accuracy. Uh, whereas you really couldn't before this because, you know, one piece would have this, one pe another piece would have this range, and it amounted to just one big confusing mess. And so what he's providing here is saying, okay, if we're, if we're dealing with a larger river, we need to be aware that we are going to be coming under fire of their cannons in a way that ours cannot cover us. Is what he's saying. You're, you know, he's like, if your opponent is setting their cannons even far back away from the lines, as long as their grape is within, you know, these, these several couple hundred yards, you're going to be just fine. And we're going to be out of range of our opponent's guns. And so it's very dangerous. And grenadier is here um, kind of synonymous with combat engineer. You know, the folks who are trying to put together the, these bridges. So yeah, this is a this is a word of caution, saying that if you're too far away, there's a reason that it's it's a bad idea because it gives away the advantage of artillery. So unless we're able to do this by surprise, it's not great. Um, you know, there, there's actually a battle from the Civil War that comes to mind when I think of this, and it's um, one of the ones where Burnside, you know, my love of Burnside, is crossing a river, where exactly where he is being pre like predicted to be able to be doing so. You know, he had the opportunity to cr cross much further down, but he didn't. But he had to advance into, you know, the shot that was being rained down from the heights above. You know, Lee had had time to range things out, to really figure out, like, how, how it was going to shake. And so when Burnside, even when he was trying to cross the river, he was met with rabid resistance because his opponent was waiting for him, and that ford was much further than the one that he would have been able to cross further upstream. And so he flew right against Napoleon. And these were, these were written not very long before the Civil War. I mean, we're talking like maybe 60 years. And that's not much 
in terms of who's got access to it <laughs> and how, how disseminated it would be. There's no doubt that Napoleon's words would have been well read by people at this time. So I don't know where he read about crossing rivers, but it certainly wasn't from, from somebody like Clausewitz or Napoleon. Anyways, I, I digress. Grape shot is absolutely devastating. Yeah, um, yeah, tears through folks, not great. So whoever controls that is, you know, they're, if you've got grape shot within range of folks who are not protected by longer range artillery batteries, you're dealing with some serious issues there. Let's see, on, on, you know, unless you're, you've got an island in between where you can set up artillery to be able to protect you. And obviously that changes the game, but we're trying to set up our artillery in such a way that we can reach them without them reaching us. That's, that's always the game. But yeah, when it's less than, okay, so then we got this small ones. We had the, you know, the bigger than 400 and then, you know, quote unquote, normal sized river. And then this one is less than 120 yards. You can, and you can command the opposite bank. The troops that are thrown over to the other side derive such advantages from the protection afforded by the artillery that however slight the re-entrant formed uh, by the river may be, it is possible for the enemy to prevent the, impossible for the enemy to prevent the establishment of a bridge. The core of the matter is these artillery, these, these people being able to be on that far side, setting up this, this area, that means that we can, it's of course way easier to set up a bridge when you control both sides of the river. Let's just put it that way. Uh, if we, if we've already gotten some forces across and they are, they've established a foothold over there, you know, we can do what we need to do. And the distances that he gives here, when he's talking about, um, shelter yourselves at the distance of six or 800 uh, yards, from the fire of the opposite bank. This is, this is a matter of making sure that your opponent cannot set up artillery within range of being able to reach out and touch you. You know, if we've got that picket line that's way far out away from the bridgehead and not just clustered around it, we've got not just warnings for when our opponent might be approaching on us, but also gives us plenty of room, plenty of breathing room. Uh, we're still sheltered by our artillery, but we've moved far enough out to make it so that even if they do get artillery set up nearby, it is not able to reach what's going on there. So I hope I didn't just make that more confusing <laughs> by trying to explain it. But yeah, yeah, bri establishing bridges is difficult, and that's going to be the next couple of ones that we're we're dealing with here. So let's do 28, or uh, 38, shall we? It is difficult to prevent an enemy provided with bridge equipment from crossing a river. When the object of the army which disputes the passage of the river is to cover a siege, the commanding general, as soon as he is certain he cannot successfully oppose the passage, should take measures to arrive in advance of the, en of the enemy at a position between the river and a place whose siege he is covering. So, you know how if you're in trouble, let's say if I'm in a siege and I call for help, and my friends are coming to help me. This means, of course, that you've got that uh, pressure coming in from both sides. And if we're not Julius Caesar and able to construct that double wall madness that he was capable or that he did, this is a very niche situation. You know, it's talking about if, we, if we're trying to maintain that siege and we've got somebody to come relieve it, you know, it, it's again, this kind of niche thing of to have them also crossing a bridge. And the idea here is that when they've got all this equipment and if they're doing things like we said, them crossing is inevitable. And so it's not a plan of disrupting their crossing. It is a man manner of making sure that when they get to the other side, they are already disrupted by our forces. We're not going to stop them from crossing. He says, um, 
you know, as soon as you cannot successfully oppose the passage, like once we realize that they're going to be crossing, right? Um, we have to take measures to arrive in advance of the enemy at a position between the river and the place which CG is covering. I don't know why I'm making that more complicated than it needs to be, I guess. Uh, it kind of makes sense. If they're crossing, if you know that they're, you know, going to be able to do so, instead of trying to sit there and continue to oppose it, you know, we, we instead go to a place where we can defend, where we can, you know, be between them and the siege. It's, I don't know why I'm still talking. That one's easy. <laughs> and now to one that is not easy. Uh, this is another honker, so buckle in. Number 39. In the campaign of 1645, the forces of Turenne were hemmed in before Philipsburg by a very numerous army. There was no bridge over the Rhine, but Turenne established his camp on the ground lying between the river and the place. This should serve as a lesson to officers of the engineer department in regard to the construction of a bridgehead as well as of a fortress. There which should be left between the fortress and the river, a space in which an army may be rallied and formed, as the entrance of the troops into a place would it would endanger it. An army pursued and retiring upon the Mayans must necessarily be in a precarious situation, since it would require more than one day to pass the bridge, and the works surrounding the Kessel are too small to contain an army without crowding and confusion. 400 yards should have been left between the works and the Rhine. It is essential that bridgeheads before large rivers should be constructed in this plan, otherwise they will be of little utility in preventing the passage of an army in retreat. Protecting, excuse me, I was like, what that doesn't make sense. Protecting the passage of an army in retreat. Bridgeheads, as are taught in the school, are good only before small rivers where the defile is not long. We're talking about the vulnerability of an army that is crossing a bridge and how useful one can be. You know, the, the, I, the temptation when we're building a fort along a river would be to build it right at the edge. Build it like right in between um, you know, the, the land and the sea so that you get the most coverage. So it's hard for the opponent to land there directly in front of your fort. The problem with this is, and it seems counter, it's, that seems intuitive. You know, it seems like, okay, well, we oppose our opponent's passage by immediately blocking it. That's fine. But what that also does is it creates a blind spot that even if we have the ability to bombard from the castle walls, there's no way that we can actually have troops directly between our fortress and the enemy. We cannot aggress on them. We cannot be able, we cannot form up and be able to maneuver and fire back. It gives a blind spot to us. And also if we're crossing a bridgehead that is very constricted like that, and then we have to come back across it quickly, like he's saying, you can be in your choke point. Bridges are already choke points. And I mean, that's, that's part of what he's saying here too. Um, you know, they're, they're only good when you were dealing with small rivers, otherwise they become a liability in a big way. If there's a huge amount of unorg of disorganized, you know, man and material coming back over them, that's a big issue. I think I think we've we, I think we figure out that we understand that one. Moving on, number forty. Fortresses are useful in offensive as well as defensive war. Undoubtedly, they cannot of themselves arrest the progress of an army, but they are an excellent means of delaying, impeding, enfeebling, and annoying a victorious enemy. Your fortresses, you know, stay where they are. 
And just because the land around a fortress may be in contest doesn't mean the fortress itself is. And one can only, can always launch raids from there. And so, you know, fortresses become something, as we talked about before, if we set up our fortresses in such a way that they, if the enemy is trying to bypass them, they're putting themselves at risk of either being flanked or cut off entirely. The fortress then becomes more than a nuisance. It becomes more than just a, a distraction or a delay. It becomes a real issue that needs to be dealt with. And if our opponent doesn't have proper siege equipment, then, you know, the fortress is null and void. So, yeah, what he's, what he's saying here is that even though fortresses can't get up and walk over to the front, they can still mold the front in terms of, like, where we can counterattack and where we know the op opponent needs to be occupied in whatever works it's doing. 41. Let's see. Yeah, this one's a honker too. There are only two modes of prosecuting a siege successfully. One is to begin by beating the hostile army employed to cover a place, driving it from the field of operations, and forcing its remains beyond some natural obstacle, such as a chain of mountains or a large river. This first difficulty overcome, you may place an army of observation behind the natural obstacle until the labors of the siege are finished and the place is taken. But if you wish to take a place in the face of an army of relief without hazarding a battle, you must be provided with siege equipment, ammunition, and provisions for the time during which the siege is expected to continue, and must form lines of contravallation and circumvallation turning, meanwhile, to the peculiarities of the ground, such as the heights, the woods, marshes, and overflows, to the best account. As there is then no necessity for keeping up any communication with your depots, you have only to hold in the check for an army of relief. To this end, you should form an army of observation, which must never lose sight of an enemy, and which, whilst shutting him out from all access to the place, may always have the time to fall upon his hang flanks and rear, should he steal a march upon you. By attacking, by taking advantage of your lines of contravallation, you can employ a part of the besieging forces in giving battle to the army of relief. A siege, therefore, in the presence of a hostile army, requires to be covered by a line of circumvallation. If your army is so strong that, after leaving before the place a body four times the number of the garrison, it is still equal to the army of relief, it may move to a greater distance than one day's march. If, after making the detachment, it remains inferior to the army of relief, it should be posted one short day's march from the place besieged, so as to be at liberty to fall back on the lines to receive succor in event of a sustaining attack. If the two armies of siege and observation united are equal only to the army of relief, the besieging army must remain altogether within or near its lines and employ itself in pushing the siege with all possible activity." Yeah. Okay. Um, basically, the best we can do, if, if ideally, if we're going to be putting together a siege, we want to make sure we're not going to be having any issues. We want to make sure that we've broken our opponent and driven them so far away that we, I mean, still observing them. We don't want an opponent moving around unobserved, but they're not going to be a serious threat, period. Now, if we haven't been able to do that, if there's still an army of relief out, out there, and we know that it is coming, this is when we start setting up the lines of circum and um, contra relation. And the difference there, again, I was just talking about Caesar and his victory over the Gauls. The first line, the first wall, 
is to make sure that the people who are being sieged, the people who are we, we are actively sieging, cannot move against us easily. So the little sorties or, or minor attacks that they may mount aren't able to do much. We've protected ourselves, even though we are the besiegers. And this is, what, this is all that's necessary, unless we know or suspect that there's another army or a relief army that might be operating in the area. At that point, we need to set up that second line, which is a series of earthworks or walls on the outside, ready to receive an enemy just in case a relief force is coming. He's also talking about because the front is right here, we don't necessarily need to maintain our depots because we already know exactly where we're going to be. Uh, we just have to hold and check this army of relief. Now he does in this particular uh, plot suggest having splitting our forces into two. Now, not necessarily having the issues that we have had previously where he says, don't split your army at all, but this is for a very particular reason. You know, we're leaving a certain amount to garrison the, the siege, the siege works that we're conducting, and the rest of it, this army of observation, goes out to make sure that whatever opponent we might have who's coming in is not able to get there quickly. And so if we're dealing with a force that is leaving that is smaller than the one that is still garrisoned, he said you can have a bit more leeway. You know, it can be more than, than a very short march to be able to come back because this, this observation needs to be out there and we're not dealing with a, a massive numbers shortage back in the garrison. On the other hand, if the force that is left at the garrison is smaller by contrast than the force that goes out to be the uh, army of observation, then it is necessary for the larger army, that army of obser observation, to remain close, to remain close by, because otherwise the garrison is at risk. You know, it, it's, it's a much worse thing for that smaller garrison, of course, to be caught unawares or to be caught by an enemy force than the bigger one. So we got to make sure that that bigger force is within range to bring back quickly. And of course, if we know that there's somebody, a relief force inbound who is potentially bigger than us, we want to pursue the siege with all possible activity. I don't know why we wouldn't be in the first place, trying to end the siege as quickly as possible. Um, but yeah, that's, that is what he's saying here. Ooh. Now we get to throw some shade. You know how these military theorists love to throw shade at each other. Well, we, we get some right here too. Number in number 42, Fuqueres has said that you should never wait for the enemy in your lines of circumvallation, but should go out and attack him. The maxim is erroneous. No rule of war is so absolute as to allow no exceptions and waiting for the enemy in the lines of circumvallation ought not to be condemned as injudious in all cases. Now remember that circumvallation is the part of the wall that is facing inwards. And so what he's saying here is that we shouldn't rely on our walls, that we need to be going out and actively engaging our opponent if we are the ones besieging. And, and we also see here that this is kind of unusual for Napoleon's style. He's kind of recommending almost caution in this particular case rather than coming out with a full-on punch saying that he disagrees with one of his contemporaries that is all about that full-on punch. And that, that takes me aback a little bit. I'm, I'm, un, I'm unaccustomed to seeing Napoleon show this kind of caution, but he's absolutely right, I think. No rule of war at all is absolute. 
there are always exceptions. There are always going to be ways that the rule can be broken by us or against us. So relying on them is, is not smart. All right, now that I'm done fretting and going back and forth on <laughs> exactly what we're doing here, let's move on to something else confusing. Number 43. They who prescribe lines of circumvallation and all the aid which are the art of the engineer can furnish, gratuitously deprive themselves of auxiliaries that are never injurious, almost always useful, and often indispensable. The principles of field fortification, however, need improvement. This important branch of the art of war has made no progress in modern times. It is even at this day a lower state than it was 2,000 years ago. Officers of the engineer department ought to be encouraged to perfect this branch of their art and raise it to a level with others. There's no, nothing wrong with admitting that there is an insufficiency in something, something that needs to be worked on. And in this case, he's saying, look, our, our siege techniques, our ability to build these walls and build these, these temporary fortifications is lacking in a certain quality. I mean, World War I, you know, about 100 years later, would also demonstrate this fact that the, the technology, the techniques, had not caught up to the rest of the, the modern weaponry. Now, he would be pleased, I think, to talk with Clausewitz, who was on the other side of this, with somebody who was about the engineering and the fortification and field department and was actively working on improving things in those areas. So it's, I like the fact that these guys are contemporaries of each other because where one has questions, the other one has answers oftentimes, which is pretty cool. Let's move out of that and move into 44. When you have a hospital and magazines in a fortified town and circumstances are such as not to admit of your leaving a sufficient garrison to defend it, you should at least make every possible exertion to put the citadel in security from the coup de main. If we've got an important place and we're unable to spare the people to defend it, we want to make sure that we've hopefully maneuvered in such a way that it is not in danger. Pretty, pretty straightforward. 45, and I think this one will be our last one for this session. A fortified place can protect against a garrison and arrest the enemy only a certain length of time. When that time has elapsed and the defenses of the place are destroyed, the garrison may lay down their arms. All civilized nations have been of one opinion in this respect, and the only dispute has been to the greater and lesser degree of resistance which a governor should offer before capitulating. Yet there are generals, Villar is one of them, who hold that a governor ought never to surrender, but that in the last ex extremity should blow up the fortifications and take advantage of the night to cut his way through the besieging army. In case you cannot blow the fortifications, you can at any rate sally out with your garrison and save your men. Commanders who have pursued this course have rejoined their army with three force their garrison. A breakout, uh, that's what he's, what he's saying here. And of course, we all know this. We all know that this, this, the siege will eventually be over. And nine times out of ten, if nothing else changes, the besiegers are going to be the ones who win. They're going to be the ones that actually take our, the victory here because they have more time. They have the ability to access outside forces and outside resources, um, where the people who are being sieged are stuck. They do not have the ability to reach out for more munitions or more food or more water or medicine. What they have is what they have. 
And so on a long enough timeline, a siege always ends in the, on the part of the aggressor. That being said, there are many things that can, that can mess with that. There are many ways for us to be able to win our siege. But, let's say we don't, he's suggesting a breakout. He's saying, look, we can, we can get out of here way faster. And in some cases that's true, but if you're going against somebody who has good lines, it's, that'd be kind of hard. I mean, I mean, you want to do it in an unsuspecting area, an unsuspecting way. But he's also saying, if you don't want to do the surrender thing, and surrendering in many cases may be the best option, like in this, in this sort of area, because a breakout wastes lives. Now, I know that that is totally against the win-at-all-costs mindset, and it's interesting uh, that we're doing this section. I'm actually going through uh, Perturbo again, the, the Horus Heresy book about the Primarch. And, of course, he's all about sieges and the cold machinery and mathematics of warfare. And I think a lot of this he would probably agree with. Now, of course, he's a genius beyond measure and could improve upon Napoleon's writings and strategy without, without a doubt. However, there is also the case that what is being said here is sound. So, uh, yeah, I think that's where we're going to end it for today. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.